You're listening to Fictron, the alternative fiction portal, and in today's episode we'll be broadly discussing interactive fiction, including different types of interactive media from scratch and sniff to virtual reality. We'll also examine and debate different thresholds for determining whether fiction is interactive or not. So without further ado, let's get alternative. Hey, what's up, guys? My name is Bela Ozier. I'm the pretentious postmodern hipster your parents warned you about. The Renaissance was a mistake. Change my mind. I'm Peter Daniel Berg. I'm a writer and game developer, and I'm here to talk about weird fiction. I'm Izzy Ansardi, and I didn't prepare an intro. All right. Okay, so interactive fiction. Uh, colloquially, interactive fiction refers to fiction that requires active engagement, or at least encourages active engagement from the audience. But I do think it needs to be said. I do think we need to get something out of the way first. All fiction is interactive. Yes, I would agree. Because like when you read a book or watch a movie, that is itself interaction. You know, you cannot have fiction without interaction. What if yeah. it's just kept the author, though? I mean, that's an interesting idea. Like, there's certainly people who have written fiction or created fiction without sharing it to the world. Um, but I would also, I would argue that the author is still interacting with it. It's, it's still, therefore, interactive. That makes sense. Yeah, I suppose so. I would go as far to say that fiction is itself interaction. I don't think you can have fiction without having interaction. Like a book sitting on a shelf, I mean, you know, colloquially we call it fiction, but I think a book just sitting in stasis on a shelf isn't fiction. It's a stack of paper with splatters of ink on it. It only becomes fiction when someone picks it up and reads it and internalizes it. You know, fiction is psychological at the end of the day. It's purely psychological. The human mind has to be involved at some step of the process. I don't know if that's what, what, what defines it as fiction is what distinguishes it from nonfiction. If you want to say that writing exists within the mind, well, it's a medium for the conveyance of ideas, sure, but I think we're getting a bit off topic towards the idea of, say, interactive fictions as video games. Well, yeah, no, I mean, we're, we're going to get to that, obviously. I just, Absolutely. Like, I do think, though, that it is important. I'm, I, I like to kind of break those molds and, like, you know, I like to um, sort of question, like, how we colloquially look at things like this, and really, interaction is, like... I would compare it to, like, uh, quantum physics in a way. I'm not an expert on quantum physics by any means, but as I understand it, uh, a quantum particle only exists in any given state when it's measured. Like, the, the point of measurement is when it exists in any given state. Otherwise, it you know, it's in an uncertain state. Welcome to uh, Watch Mojo's Top 6 Quark. <laughs> yes. <laughs> T- number five. The <laughs> number five, the up quark. Yes. Okay. Um, <laughs> wow, we've got 500 up quarks on uh, quantum Reddit. Evil. Okay, no, this Horrible. is epic. That's why, though, that's why I think that all fiction is interactive. Um, yes. Any of uh, you guys have stuff to add to this? Well, yeah, definitely. I mean, writing is the easiest way to perform, I guess, delayed telepathy, injecting your ideas into someone else's brain. But then again, it's like, I would also say that it's not even necessarily the same ideas, like pure, like if you have a sentence that says, a man walks up to a castle, well, is the man facing due north or due south? How big is the castle? What color is it? And, you know, you can fill in those details. And I mean, the movies do that very well. You know, movies are some of the most detail-filled fiction you can have. But 
um, at the same time, like, you know, there's things, I think there's stuff to be considered, like, where do you sit in a movie theater? What angle are you viewing it from? How big is the screen? I think all of that has a negligible but true effect on how someone interprets a work of fiction. This reminds me of a riddle. You go on stage and play a song for a thousand people. How many songs were played? Yes, exactly. Yes, that's exactly one thousand and one because everyone has their own interpretation and everyone hears it just a little bit differently. Yeah, yeah, that is including you. That is how I like feel about fiction. Basically, is like you know, if if an author uh, writes a work of fiction, uh, really what they're creating is the means for different people to experience um, their own version of uh, a piece of media. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, they treat it like a piece of media. Is he? I guess like all fiction is pretty much creation and like creation in and of itself is a form of communication and <laughs> that sounds dumb um no that i liked that i like okay it. great i'll continue on with that i'm sorry um i don't even know how to continue with that though i'm so sorry no worries well if we're gonna you know hit the road or the court on this then let's go from the abstract to the concrete let's talk about something a little more specific uh something a little more grounded let's talk about how now i'm now i'm blanking (laughs) (laughs) sorry it's contagious um are you guys familiar with the concept of ludo narrative symmetry absolutely what is that L-U-D-O, ludus, L-U-D-U-S, is the Latin word for game. So ludonarrative symmetry is when in a video game you have a story communicated through gameplay and story and gameplay matching each other and meshing really well. And it seems interesting to me that it's relatively rare. When you do find it, it's really, really good. And of course, this is going to be a conversation that has spoilers for games that people in the audience might not have played. I'm going to try to keep what I know to spoiler minimum. Uh, In Undertale, for example, there is a great deal of ludonarrative symmetry when it comes to the combat system. So, well, anyways, the combat system, it's an RPG that uses bullet hell mechanics. And you have, when you attack, it's more like a Mario golf meter. You're a foreign entity in the underground. You are a human being who's trapped underground. And in order to get through the underground peaceably, you have to interact with monsters on their terms. And so this is reflected well in the gameplay because you have to engage with the bullet hell mechanics and basically act as a diplomat, essentially. If you use the combat mechanic you have, which is the Mario Golf type of meter, where it swings back and forth and you have to strike at the right moment on the meter, uh, you're not playing by their terms, you're going against them. And so that's a good example of how gameplay is helping to communicate story. Mm, okay, that's interesting. The mechanics themselves, depending on whether you decide to cooperate with them or fight against them. It matches the narrative, yes. Yeah, I like that. And plenty of games have this, although not as many as you might think. There are certainly many games where there's a complete disconnect between story and gameplay. And it's always rough to see that, because in retrospect, of course, you can always look and say, well, they could have done this change just a little bit better, and then the way you play the game would have actually communicated story. And it's like you were saying before we started the um, Stockroach ARG. Even little bits of lore communicated in notepad documents in the background are things that A, require user engagement to notice, whether you're freeze frame and frame stepping through it to read them. The way that's done is so that um, it requires active participation, but I'm sorry, it got away from me. We were we talking about ludo symmetry. Ludo narrative yes. symmetry, yeah. 
story and gameplay correspond to each other helps to communicate uh, story through gameplay. It's kind of like the idea I brought up in last episode that at the time I called it future retroism, but I've since come up with a better name, displaced patina. <laughs> when the oldness of one thing is reflected in the oldness of a type of media that's not as old. And hmm. I'm writing um, an essay about it right now that I'm going to try to post on the Fictron blog. Hopefully it's up by the time this episode's released. But uh, yeah, it's kind of like that. Okay. Uh, I think we should differentiate a little more what we really mean by like active versus passive engagement because you could draw the yeah. line anywhere pretty much. But for the purpose of this discussion, I think we are, you know, I think all of us are drawing it basically as just sitting and absorbing a work of fiction through the text or through video or or whatever versus uh, having to go out of your way to actually engage with it. So I think, you know, I think... Uh, colloquially, you could argue that um, a scratch and sniff book, for example, is interactive <laughs> fiction. Because, I mean, you don't... Is is it fiction? Is story being communicated through the smell? Is, is the smell fake is the real well, question. What do you mean by that? Is it a fictional yeah. smell? Oh, okay. Is it like a... Well, certainly the smell is like... The, the chemicals they use in those kind of books to represent the smells are likely not the same thing as the things they're supposed to smell like. Is it auto-narrative symmetry? <laughs> but I think that, you know, in, in a sense, it's immersive. Like, when it gives you Absolutely. some kind of, when, when you have some kind of analog element to a story, I think it's a little, like, more immersive. Yeah. I wouldn't say that Scratch and Sniff is interactive. I would say that it's multimedia. Uh, but multimedia and interactive aren't the same thing. Yes, you have to access that bit of the story differently, but you're not actually interacting with the story in that regard you're just it's no different than turning the page well sure but but you know like what i was saying before is that turning the page is itself interactive i think you could call it that and i think that scratch and sniff in particular is sort of like on the threshold between fiction that is interactive by virtue of simply being fiction and fiction that is more colloquially interactive because like it's like it's an example where you don't have to interact with it you can certainly understand the story and progress through it without having to scratch and sniff. But I think you'd be hard-pressed to say that it doesn't add anything to that experience of the story itself when you do scratch and sniff. By that token, you could say that a person who is not colorblind is engaging with more of the story than a person who is colorblind when they watch a movie. Well, sometimes that's the case. But does that have to do with the story or merely the medium? I don't think that's actually story. That's just medium. Well, I mean, that's the point I'm getting at, though, is that that's sort of, I think, up to uh, the person engaging with the media. I think that's sort of up to them to decide. I think I think for some okay. people it would be irrelevant. And I think some people might feel it actually does add to the story to be able to or to not be able to experience specific elements of it. All right. I guess there are multiple tiers or nested layers of interaction. Yes. Because I would put a very more specific, more concrete threshold on this, which is that interactive fiction is fiction which is altered by interaction. Okay, I think that's a fair threshold in and of itself. If, the, if you haven't seen it, so there was this documentary called Homestar Runner, How to Master a Dying Art Form, which was released uh, in July of 2021 by the guy named Lord uh, Ravenscraft. I just pulled it up on YouTube here. In this video, which is really good. Now, I grew up on Homestar Runner. It's my childhood, okay? I'm not going to say that like, oh, it's, you know, pure nostalgia bait. There was something good and interesting about it, especially because it was, as uh, Lord Ravenscraft points out in his video, the brother's chaps 
mastered this art form while it was barely nascent. You know, it had barely begun and they were already developing it and riffing on the medium itself in ways that were unlikely to have ever otherwise occurred. And one of those was that, at least in one episode, there is something that you can do in Flash which you can't do in essentially any other medium that requires not only active engagement from the viewer to consume it, but active engagement for the story to proceed. There is an Easter egg that's very difficult to click, but if you click on this Easter egg, you get an entire scene inserted into the middle of the cartoon. How would this happen in any other medium? Yes. Yes, that's a lot like um, there are some Homestuck Flash animations where uh, an icon will appear in the corner for a brief moment. And if you are, you know, sharp enough to see it and click on it, it does, it will do the same thing. It takes you to a totally separate, like, animated segment. Exactly. And I think the only other thing I've ever seen do this is uh, those old DVD interactive games. You know what I'm talking yeah. about? Oh, yes. I, like like, like uh, Star Trek Voyager FMV game or whatever. I think we could do a whole episode on DVD menus, honestly. There's so <laughs> DVD much fodder there. Oh, yeah. I remember there used to be a single-serving website called You Fell Asleep Watching a DVD. <laughs> so it was just a compilation of DVD menus. Oh, I love that. But, um... I mean, video games have done this for a long time, but it's rare to see it in any form beside a video game. The first Easter egg, if I recall correctly, was, and this is only from academic reading, I haven't encountered this one myself, was in a, a, a 1970s game called Lunar Lander, where if you went off screen to the right for far enough, you would end up at a McDonald's. <laughs> we, have, we have Lunar Landers at home. <laughs> Certainly, though, like video games, I think, are an example of, of interactive fiction that you not only are able to interact with that, it actually, like you said, Peter, I think it requires it. Yes. It's not merely something that is possible. It is a requirement. Oh, absolutely. Yes. If you, or well, I mean, you technically you could just turn on a game and just not do anything. I mean, it, there wouldn't be much in the way of lore, but you could certainly argue that some kind of narrative is being created in that moment of just a character standing and doing nothing. That's not a very good story. Uh, yeah, maybe. Um, that's very um, tenuous and weedy. I wouldn't consider that the deliverance of story. What we're talking about when we're talking about ludonarrative symmetry is how uh, gameplay communicates story. And so there has to be existing story that is being communicated because, as with any story, a game does not exist without authorship. Well, yes, that's true. I, I mean, that's an extreme example I gave. Yeah. I don't think Sonic tapping his toe and looking at his imaginary watch and waiting for you to pick up the controller again is story. Although it communicates character, it's not story. Yes, that's what I'm saying. It has. It's not fiction itself, but it's under the same umbrella. It's got some of the same building blocks that fiction does. Yeah, I, I don't think a lack of interaction is interaction. Yes, you know, that was an extreme example I gave, but uh, where I'm really sort of going with that is that depending on how someone plays a game, where they choose to go first or whatnot, and, you know, whether or not the game even has multiple branching paths, which is, you know, a, definitely a possibility. But even if it doesn't, like if someone goes one way first and then another, like if someone explores a certain area first before going to do something, then that itself, you could argue that that alters the story. Yeah, I would say so. It doesn't alter the ending, per se, if there's only one ending, but certainly it alters the intermediary plot. Yeah, and I guess I have thought about this in the past, the idea that should the story proceed at the pace of user interaction, or should it proceed in real time? There certainly are real-time games, but the question is, I mean, it's a fine line. For example, in Ocarina of Time, 
there's a specific deadline of the world will end in three days, and the user, ha the player has to interact within that, and they're given the contrivance of being allowed to rewind a time just in case they don't have enough time, and that you you barely ever do. I'm not too familiar with the optimal strategies for that game, but I would be surprised if it were possible to complete the game within only one loop of uh, events. I don't think that's possible. Mm, yeah. Maybe I'm wrong. So you, you, I would love you to see are someone do at that. some point required to rewind time in order to get everything done. Which sort of raises the question, well, why not just give them a little more time so that, if perf so that perfect play would fit within one loop? But I guess because they want to show off the cool ocarina. And so in that way, that game proceeds in a sort of real time and does not proceed with player action. It proceeds at its own pace. But other games, like, for example, one of the games I'm making, most of the games I'm making, and most other forms of interactive fiction in video games, such as, say, visual novels or um, basically anything where a story takes a priority, any RPG, the story proceeds at the pace of user interaction. Until you make a move, time is standing still. So in a sense, every RPG is super hot. Mmm, yeah. Time moves when you do. The super hot developers think that that's like a cool thing. And yes, it is because in their case, it's just as simple and interesting a mechanical shift as Jump King was. So in super hot, time only moves when you do, which is to say that they've tied the time rate variable to the player's velocity which is a very simple thing to do, but it creates an entirely new genre, in a sense. Or if not a genre, then a new kind of gameplay mechanic that really hadn't been seen before. So, by the same token, in RPGs, time only moves when you do. And I think this is a really interesting thing, because it does require user participation in a very active way in order for the story to proceed and be told. It's almost like... I guess the earliest example I can think of of interactive fiction might be, say, something like pantomime theater, where audience feedback is required, or if not required, merely expected for the story to proceed. Things like the audience booing the villain when he shows up. Yeah, yeah, I mean, exactly. It's almost like WWE yeah, or something. Yeah, exactly. The audience booing the villain is an expected part of audience participation, and you even see this in things like uh, Japanese live Super Sentai shows. And they have the same sense of the audience participation makes it real. Whether you're stomping on the floor or you're, like, throwing stuff, you know, those are parts of uh, telling the story. There definitely are a lot more video games where you have... The, the story beats are reached at the player's progression. I don't know if I've ever seen a game where, say, it's broken down to the second, so, like, oh, every move you make costs one second of time, which would be kind of weird. I'm sure someone could make it work, though. That would be interesting to see. Yeah, it would be interesting to see. I wonder if it would actually work. It's kind of like in, well, there are halfways, I guess. Like in Pokemon, when you're poisoned, every step you take has a random chance to um, make the poison decrease a little bit, you know? Or, or it, it, it makes it advance a little more. I forget precisely how it works. But that actually is like per action uh, response. Um, any examples you can think of this? Is I was thinking especially about live action interpretations of Peter Pan. Because oh, yeah? the Tinkerbell scene in which she's, like, dying and Peter is like, do you believe in fairies to the audience and they're all supposed to cheer? That's such an integral part of the stage show. Oh, true. Yeah, and especially so much as in, like, I think it began premiering in the, like, 1920s-ish era. Um, like, I remember reading an article that was, like, they were so, like, unsure of the audience if they would even, like, do that. That they were, like, so shocked 
when they actually, like, time actually came to, like, participate in the story. And I think that's, like, also a testament to, like, how well a piece of media can grip an audience to, like, participate and go along with what the author or entertainer, like, wants you to do versus, like, being completely out of it and, like, disengaged if it's not, like, an interesting story. Oh, yeah, definitely. Well, it's, it almost sounds like an elaboration of beaten trainment, you know, everyone nodding their head at a concert. Yeah, pretty much, exactly. Like a uh, uh, literary mosh pit. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, so many paper cuts that night. <laughs> a mosh lit? A mosh lit. <laughs> so... I think, um, Peter, like you were saying, that, you know, in many video games, like, just sort of by virtue of how the games are programmed and how they work, time only moves when you do. Um, yes. On the, on the flip side of that, you have ARGs, which are interactive fiction where time is always moving, regardless if you are taking action or not. And yeah. the thing that's so difficult, I, I ran a small ARG for a while, and I quickly learned that the, the absolute hardest part about running an ARG is getting people to engage with it because yeah. it is really, I think it is one of the most audience engagement dependent mediums out there. You absolutely cannot have it without having audience engagement because otherwise nothing happens. You know, I was talking about this with another friend uh, uh, recently. Uh, is Bitcoin an energy? <laughs> Bitcoin? Well, yes, it requires audience engagement and it relies heavily on FOMO. It's a sense you could take it as sort of a FOMO-based economy. Yeah, in that sense, I guess, like, if you... Isn't all money an ARG? It requires participation in order to continue? Yes, and, um, <laughs> I mean, at, at, at the risk of sounding controversial, I have I have argued that religion could be considered an ARG as well. Eh, fair point, I guess. Um, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna go down that route, though. You know, believe. Uh, yeah, no worries. Believe no what worries. you want. I, I just like. I just like the idea of like, oh, the right clicker mentality. It's such a good phrase. It's like, go ahead, right clicker, save it. You won't get the clout. You didn't learn anything. You didn't progress. <laughs> this recent stuff about NFTs really drives it to a head. It's like it's all about FOMO. It's all about flex. It's all about clout. And it it is in a sense. It's all about that hysterical. Uh, what is it, mass hysterical uh, participation, it's the same sort of thing you get from an ARG. The idea that everyone wants to be at the cutting edge of the story, and everyone has to be right there or you're missing out. It's the same way it is with an MMO. When everyone wants an MMO, and people have been wanting another good MMO for a decade now, for a decade at least, with all the old titans of the MMO genre on the decline, what everyone really wants, and there's still high demand for it, is a new MMO, and everyone wants to be right there at the front line when it opens so they can get in and play uh, 40 people, all their closest friends, 40 people, playing together against the same boss and just engaging in a living, breathing alternate world. And it's the same sort of thing. A lot of these real-time uh, interactive fiction stories, where the story proceeds even if you're not taking part in it, really heavily rely on driving up participation and people wanting to participate. If people are participating, but they don't really want to be there, then is it really a good story? Yes. Is it really is it really happening? Exactly. It's like I was thinking about exactly that earlier, and like how I was so disengaged with like a lot of textbooks I read, <laughs> and then just didn't yeah. retain any information at all. So it's like, did I even read them really? Even though they have a roller coaster and a guy surfing and a tree frog and a nautilus shell. Exactly. On the cover? Yeah. How could that not be engaging? 
Yes. Yes. Can't judge a book by its cover, to say the least. <laughs> I think, you know, that's another point, though. I think I think that, like, it's not so much that uh, you can't judge a book by its cover. It's more that um, everyone inevitably will and does judge a book by its cover to some capacity. Well, that's the reason that books have covers. But it's not just that. Like, even if books weren't given covers. This book has been sold as unstripped and destroyed. Yes. But, like, more broadly what I'm saying is that the physical condition of a of a piece of media that you're engaging with or, like, the, the conditions under which you experience uh, do inevitably have some effect, you know, whether it's noticeable or otherwise. They will have some kind of effect on how you uh, interpret a piece of media. Yeah, I'd, like the the ancillary and uh, surrounding pieces of presentation. Yes. Those that don't contribute directly to the story, but merely surround yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I would say so. I, I thought of another good example, um, which is, so in several games recently, it's become increasingly common to have dynamic soundtracks, where the music itself responds to player input. So, for example, in Super Mario Odyssey, uh, the mm, sound effects in certain areas change uh, depending on what mechanic you're using. Um, when, I think it's in the desert zone, for example, when Mario turns into the little electric thing and zips along the uh, live wires, uh, there's this little arpeggio, and it changes its pitch to match the background music as the background music is playing. And another earlier example would be in Metal Gear Revengeance, where if you're doing really well in combat, the lyrics kick in. But otherwise, the music is just uh, the um, instrumental. Yeah, I, li- I like that. I like it when media yeah. does that. With, like, yeah. It's just when audio is integrated that well to like reflect what's actually happening, it's so good. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's so powerful to be you know slicing this um, super katana through some evil bad robot. And uh, you, you just you make the perfect slice, and the score goes super crazy high. And it's like... Uh, it's staring across this barren, wasted land. And then it just sort of drops out sometimes. But you, you get that brief little pulse of, like, there's something more to this world. There's something that required your engagement to happen. Yes. Yes, yeah. it's like you did a good job. You were rewarded with not merely, um, uh, not merely more story, but you were rewarded with a story from a different angle. You know? You were rewarded at another peak behind the curtain. A greater Umwelt. Umwelt is the idea that your senses determine your environment, and this is something that I feel like a lot of video games uh, really ought to uh, take into account more often. Because too often, I think, games are overly concerned with presenting exactly the same story to everyone, and this, I feel, is is born in part out of um, the developer's trepidations that the gamer will miss any part of the story. But an experience should be allowed to be a little bit more unique. In fact, I would argue that more game developers should be interested in making stories that change depending on the user's uh, interaction. Not merely to have multiple endings, but that certain things become accessible only based on, say, system settings. Things that you wouldn't really think about. For example, what if what if an RPG or any kind of game, for that matter, were slightly different on on PC and Mac, not merely in technical specifications, but simply as the by virtue of which operating system it's running on, you get a different game, a slightly different game. A mouse lives in a different world from a snake because the snake can sense heat. 
the snake has a different sense, and so the snake essentially lives in a different world. Yes, and a snake is an animal, and a mouse is an electric device. <laughs> mm. Use thunderbolt. Well, first of all, I'd like to say that that's like a fantastic idea, and I wholeheartedly agree. But um, when you were mentioning the uh, reward of like changes in score and music and like adding in those like extra elements i was thinking a lot of jojo and even though like it's not quite it's 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 a a show and it doesn't have like as much audience interaction there is a reward when you get to like the finale of the seasons and that sound effect kicks in in the intro and it, like, sort of rewards you for, like, coming all this way and, like, surviving this, like, five million episode, like, arc. <laughs> Especially in, like, part three. What sound effect is it? The roundabout? Not, it's just, like, sound effects from the intro. Like, they add in, like, oh, certain, okay. like, footsteps. Sounds of, like, metal colliding. Oh, like, okay. I thought you were talking about more, like, when the season finale comes up and they play the intro without the credits on it. Oh! Oh, no, that's not what I'm talking about at all. Okay. I was talking about, like, specifically the intro and how that changes. Okay. And uh, I, it's, I think it's, like, most notable in part three at the ending where, like, Dio just straight up interrupts the intro. <laughs> <laughs> and That's good. Yeah, and just, like, goes straight into, like, kind of fighting Jotaro. <laughs> <laughs> It's like that. That's what I said about the body wash is so powerful. It's interrupting this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> it reminds me of the um, epic rap battles of history, Bill Gates versus Steve Jobs, where Steve Jobs just cuts in through the intro. <laughs> Let me just step right in. I got things to invent. <laughs> that that what you described there, Izzy, though, that is exactly that is like literally to the T. Um, one of the what felt to me so rewarding about reading Holmes yeah was that you would have so many pages and a lot of them have are very text dense and most of the pages are just like very simple you know gif animations on loop but then once in a while you would get this fantastic just totally overblown crazy ass like really well executed flash animation with awesome music and oh yeah it's that same kind of thing you were talking about it felt like it was rewarding to get to that yeah and yeah i think this also kind of goes back to peter what you were saying last episode about like how annoying it is in anime and um in other like newer forms of media when they use like big runic circles to build up a spell and how (laughs) over the top it is i think that there's a value in uh conserving that not just because it's so extraneous but because it makes it that much more impactful when something big and over the top does happen well yeah like in in konosuba one of the characters casts uh explosion magic every day and it's always deliberately over the top because that's the joke of her character she's um like one of those middle schoolers who thinks they have magic powers do you remember being in eighth grade and you'd have like that friend who genuinely thought he had cryokinesis or something i was that friend (laughs) Yes, yes, exactly. So this character, she's like that. She refuses to put any other energy into anything except explosion magic. And yeah, okay, the explosions are cool and over the top, but it only leads to them having to raise the stakes each time she does it uh, when it's more important to the story. Like season one finale, she makes a magic circle that's nearly the size of the city they're in. And you know things are about to be really bad. Um, It's cool, it's amazing, but also, like, it would have been more impactful if the earlier ones were smaller and more limited in their frequency. 
But again, it's a comedy show. Yes. And the other thing I was going to bring up with regards to even a passive medium like uh, an animated cartoon like JoJo can have an interactive reward like that. Uh, the book Clockwork Orange, I felt, had some element of video game-like progression. Because, so this, this book involves a lot of heavily derived Russian slang, or rather it's slang in English teenage vernacular, and this is in England specifically, uh, derived from Russian, and they call it nadsat, which is the Russian, or derived from the Russian word for teenager. And so the characters use this really interesting jargonic teenage vernacular that doesn't really exist in the real world and certainly didn't at the time. It's set probably in the late 90s, and it was written, I think, in the 60s. The characters use this, and at first you have no idea what they're saying, at least if you don't speak Russian. The characters are using these terms, and you only have to figure out from context. You can only figure out from context what they're saying. And at first it's really slow going. I measured it. I did a sample of like 20 pages through the book, and I counted how many instances of NADSAT there were per page, and at least in my copy, it came out to about um, 8% or of the book, 8% or 9% of the book by word count is this foreign-influenced uh, Russian slang, Russified English. And I thought, well, that's not very much, but it's actually pretty dense. It's pretty dense going. And yet, as you read it and you internalize and contextualize the slang terms, you get rewarded with an increased pace of progression because now you understand what he means when he says these specific words, you know? And yet, for all the brilliance of the story itself, which is, you know, the rebellion of youth, it's not actually a really convincing set of slang, because all of the slang words are for things that people don't make slang words for. <laughs> like, the main character, Alex, he's using slang words for things like laughing, and people's clothes, and, you know, um, smiles, and mouths, and hands, and fists, and uh, teeth, and... I mean, it's normally what you'd invent slang for is things that you weren't inclined to talk about in regular English, right? So it strikes me as, like, it's very well-crafted, but it doesn't correspond to how people actually use slang. It's like kind of like some of the, uh, the new speak from 1984. Not really, because it's not designed from the top down as a vanguard project to control human thought through speech. Well, yeah. I did think, though, it was kind of weird. Like, the, the one word that I thought was particularly weird in that book was chalk rat, short for chocolate ration, because that's such a specific <laughs> thing to make like, shorthand for. Yeah. Like, why? What's the point? Yeah. Y you'd think that they wouldn't even use the word chocolate. They would just call it a ration. Yeah. Also, the term, like, rat in conjunction with food just sounds unappetizing. <laughs> yeah. You're right. <laughs> we are the rats. <laughs> I'm the giant rat who makes all the rules. Wait, 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 wait. Speaking of Germa, did y'all yeah. watch the Dollhouse stream? Yes, I did. It was so good. It was incredible. Like, how does he think of that in the first place? And then to actually go through and execute on it, it's insane. I know. Well, I'm honestly glad that's... <laughs> um, he was released as, like, one of the sort of, like, top Twitch earners, and I'm glad to see, like, that's what he's putting his money into. <laughs> I think that's really, like, rewarding. Um, did you see this, Bela? No, I did not, so please... Are you familiar me. with it at all? Um, I know what Twitch is. Uh, okay, I know so... What, I know what dollhouses are. Do you know, do you know Germa? You know Germa, right? You've seen... You just quoted the Rat King thing. Oh, he made... <laughs> okay, uh, that's the only thing I know of him. That's totally oh, okay. fine. So he's a he's a Twitch streamer, the the shortest man in Boston. He's only five foot one, or four foot one at that, you know. Tiny boy. Yeah, tiny. He's a very compact streamer. <laughs> compact streamer with a fat ass. Yeah. 
He's uh, he's pretty funny, and he's a very talented voice actor. Is he? Have you seen the clip where he's playing Bug Snacks and he just rattles through like a hundred impressions and yeah, that's insane to me. Yeah, but it's really crazy. But so he did a stream. Maybe Izzy, you can fill uh, Bill in on a bit more of the details. But to my recollection, he rented out a warehouse and made like a his own version of The Sims, where he was the Sim and his chat was commanding. Yes, <sighs> that's like oh pretty much God. the like the basic summary. That's yeah. all you need to know, really. <laughs> It's yeah. like Twitch. It's like Twitch plays Pokemon, but with a real human. Yes, being. and they yes. murdered yes. him. <laughs> yeah, no, it was really funny. Oh, I love because they like had that. like guest stars come over, and weren't some of them dressed as clowns? Yes, they were clowns. That sort of thing, and there was like he couldn't get out of the house because his bed was blocking the way. Yeah, he has like he's pretending he has the limited motion of a sim. Yes, and like the same emotional bars and stats, and he has to like react. Yes, to <laughs> yes, man. That is, like, I, I live for stuff like that. I mean, Peter, when you were saying earlier about how one of the big appeals for people who are into ARGs is that sort of, like, powerful, almost spiritual, sort of profound moment of realizing that this is a unique experience you and, like, no one else is having in a moment. Yeah. That basically is, like, probably one of my absolute favorite things about ARGs is just that there is something really powerful about being, like, wow, I'm having an authentic experience with someone that no one else is having right now. Like, that's really kind of cool. It's not merely that no one else is having it. I think my point was more that you're having it with tons of other people and your experience is unique. Yeah. Yeah, it's like you and several other people are having similar but unique experiences. Absolutely, like, absolutely. It's your experience. It's like being a hero. I mean, that like, when I was, um, uh, you know, I play uh, Ingress, which is a video game made by uh, Niantic, the company that produced Pokemon Go. Um, and it predates Pokemon Go by about three years. And uh, it was also my introduction to ARGs, actually. And the video game itself is a tie-in to uh, a larger narrative that they created around it. But so I, um, at an Ingress event, uh, interacted with one of the characters there who was like, you know, he plays the role of like a researcher for this basically shady secret agent, like espionage type organization. And yes. I, I like made, I suggested, you know, I was like playing up the role and saying like, uh, you should do this. Like you should research this thing. And he said, um, that's an interesting idea. Like, that's a good idea. I think I'll yeah. go tell corporate about that or like whatever. And it's like, it's like, I know, you know, obviously it's like, it's not actually going to impact the actual ingress lore in any meaningful way that it will be noticeable but like i know that i made that happen and that it's technically oh, canon yeah. in my experience and that's like that's a really powerful thing absolutely even real world like corporate interactions could stand to have a bit more narrative uh, surrounding to them like when i suggest a feature to google drive like i want it to feel like i'm uh, addressing you know a fictional character like you know what i'm talking about Yes. I, I like the idea that it can make it feel more like it matters. And sure, that's a weird example to give, but what was the other thing I was going to think of? Oh, yeah, I was at a convention once and I ran into Tomska and I'd said, hey, can you make like a shirt with the entirety of Asdif movie on it? <laughs> and at first he didn't know what I meant. And I explained that I meant like, I want a collage of every frame from the cartoon as a shirt. <laughs> Just like tiled across the entire shirt like a film reel. And he was like... Well, we'll see about that. We're too busy brainstorming like a plastic mind turtle. <laughs> it's like those um, like pieces of wall art that take frames from a movie and like certain 
progressions and then just like stick them on the wall so it's like these color bars but <laughs> since it's like as if it's just like black and white <laughs> it's nothing the big old barcode yeah yeah <laughs> Well, yeah, it's, it's, oh man, that reminds me of uh, the old uh, MIT hacks page. Uh, I got into that because the Homestar Runner wiki had a list of Homestar Runner appearing in other media, which I don't even know if they maintain that anymore because it's obviously extremely dense. <laughs> they probably do, though. But it was, um, there was one instance where they, there was uh, a hack, and MIT students at the time used the word hack to simply mean like a prank or an art installation, ah. essentially. So something like putting a, um, a paper mache police car on top of the dome um, <laughs> was a hack, and one of them they that's did such, was that's such an early two thousands thing to call a prank. A oh, hack. absolutely! Wow, life hack. <laughs> exactly, yeah, life hack. You know, I don't know what uh, uh, part of the world you come from, but uh, out in here, the term life hack means something different. <laughs> <laughs> and we got um th- one of them anyways was uh, a post-it note collage of Trogdor. Nice. Uh, to make a long story short, but it's like okay, that that's a hack, that's a reference, but it is people engaging with a story, sure. The, and and in Homestar Runner, like isn't the um the most popular segment um uh, spee mails where strong bad Oh yeah, like, strong bad email. Yeah, strong yeah, bad email. Fan emails. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that is in fact uh people uh, in the fan base. That's fans influencing the course of the story. Absolutely. I mean, one of the most influential females was basically random gibberish, and the uh, brothers chaps decided to interpret it as uh, as a virus. And so Strongbed's uh, <laughs> computer caught a virus, and it uh, messed with the whole uh, cartoon website, because it, it made things all glitchy. And yeah, yeah a- after a while, he got a new computer, you know? <laughs> so, and a, so fan a, a, a fan gibberish. typing in gibberish, yeah. Made someone buy a whole Astro computer. I well, not that. the not the brothers chaps, of course. It was completely in universe. Oh, but okay, it had I the same. You meant the actual. No, 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 no. It wasn't a real virus. No, Strongbad well, know, bought yeah. a new computer. I thought I thought you meant though that they were so committed to the bit that they bought like, no. an actual computer. <laughs> that would be funny, but no. Um, <laughs> I mean, I really can't think of anything more interactive than Homestar Runner when it comes to the scale of fan engagement with the creators. Yes. But this particular thing, I mean, the way I described it just now makes it sound like it's a something is happening in Neopia type of event. <laughs> but it was more specifically just like it influenced the course of the story. It wasn't like across the entire website, but it was definitely playing with the medium. Like in that episode, they actually like mess with the way the Flash cartoon works. Oh my god, Neopets, though. I know, right? <laughs> Something is happening in Neopia. We should do a Neopets episode. I have opinions to discuss. We could do, like, an episode on just, like, virtual pets in general. Oh, yes. Neopets, Tamagotchi, Webkins. I was gonna say Webkins. Stuff. Webkins. Yeah. I had so many. I used to write Webkins creepypasta when I was, like, eight. <laughs> <laughs> what, with the, like, the, the penguin doctor or whatever? I'm sorry. Yeah, no, literally Mr. Quack. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> I remember this website called Dudkins, which was like a parody. Like, they made these badly photoshopped knockoff webkins that were all like gross or creepy. Oh, like garbage, oh, like garbage patch kids. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yes. It was just like that, but with webkins. <laughs> That's so dumb. It sounds exactly like something from that era. Yeah. Right? 
Man, web webkins is that's totally interactive fiction though i mean you like you know control the character of course but it's interactive on multiple levels like the ingeniousness of webkins really was that it was both analog and digital and i love stuff that mixes analog and digital in media like scanners yes oh scanners was cool i wanted I scanners wanted when sc i was a kid for audience reference, we're not talking about the movie scanners where people's heads explode. We're talking about <laughs> this uh, early 2000s uh, product for kids. It was a toy where it was a barcode scanner that would interpret barcodes as fictional Pokemon-like monsters, and you could battle them with each other. I wanted one so bad. <laughs> yeah, and that concept has been tried several times, I feel like, but it's never really gotten off the ground. But it really was an interesting thing because the medium for the monsters already existed in the world. And they were taking advantage of something that already existed, but to that point had only been used for exactly what it was meant for. And had never yes. been alternatively interpreted. Exactly. And, like, for the audience that's, like, consuming it, which is, like, kids, they can just play it when they're accompanying, like, their mom to the grocery store. And it, like, makes yeah, exactly. it fun and makes the parent not want to, like, die. And and now you can't really have that, not least of which, oh, I, I guess you could still have it. Because, I mean, it ran on, you know, the same kind of low-res chips that those old, like, McDonald's football handhelds ran on. <laughs> But nowadays, kids would probably expect uh, that it would be on their smartphone. And smartphones don't have barcode readers, unless you steal them from Walmart. They have QR readers, though. Well, yeah, but... There's not as many QR codes just out there, though. Can you, can you read regular UPCs with a QR code reader? Oh. I, think you I think you can with some, but the problem is version stability. Because then you're running on someone else's hardware and software. Oh. And at that point, you're just distributing an app. And that's not nearly as engaging as having a specific physical device with, like, transparent red or purple plastic. So you can see the circuits inside, like, one of them old calculators or Game Boys. And then you can scan it and get it on the LCD screen. And it's this weird golden bat with, um, you know, a crown on it. <laughs> there is, um, there is Munzee, except Munzee is, you know, really not fiction. It is, like, it's like geocaching. It's like a scavenger hunt type of app where like people hide these qr code stickers around and like you can see like where they are and it's just like a way to explore new places it's not as fun or interesting as geocaching though not the least of which because it is just a qr sticker not an actual container hidden somewhere. yeah if only they could make it so that the container itself was the qr code yeah see i think some people do make like hybrid munzee geocaches what I was thinking is, what if you had a system where you had to have sort of a carved wooden box, and the pattern that's carved into it is the geo is the QR code? So that would lend more like medium stability to it. Modern day runes. Modern day runes. Not merely just modern day runes. Exactly. Exactly. I've seen alternate forms of QR code that are specific to products. Like I forget if it was like Transformers or a similar product line. And I don't think you'll be able to find an image reference for this, but there was some toy robot brand where they had their own, like, gear-shaped QR codes or something. And it was, like, the data was encoded in the toothpegs. Ooh. Oh, that's cool. And so it was, it worked with a proprietary app. It was that sort of thing. And, I mean, that's sort of the same thing as um, Amiibos on Nintendo. Yeah! Where you plug it in and it brings the character into the game. Although that's definitely been done much before Nintendo did it. Way before. Yeah, and I mean, it's like, you know, if the number of copies of Disney Infinity on the shelves at Thrift Store is any indicator. Oh boy. <laughs> it's clearly not exactly been successful in the past. Yeah, oh boy. Yeah. Why, why don't... Well, if we're talking about Disney Infinity, isn't that just Kingdom Hearts? <laughs> Um, well, yes, but, like, it, it had, it had an analog element, though, where, like, it yes. came with, like, plastic figures. 
Did I talk yet on this podcast about my idea why Homestuck and Kingdom Hearts are similar? Not on the podcast, but you've mentioned that to me. And I think it's really spot on, actually. So, Izzy, my idea for this, or my, my thinking about... Uh, this is that Homestuck and Kingdom Hearts are similar in that they are complex for similar reasons. And those three reasons are that you have time travel, and time travel actually changes the sequence of events. You have every character can potentially be three different characters, uh, and you have uh, worlds based around characters themselves. So different mental spaces, a little bit like Psychonauts. Different mental spaces or different alternate realms based around a character in particular. Those three factors combine to basically explode the complexity of the story. I don't know if I could actually draw this out into like an 8 minute or 10 minute analysis video, but it's it's certainly worth thinking about, I think. I totally think you could. I There's like a lot there that you could talk about. <laughs> I could totally see it. Well, it's like, if you want to make a story that has the same sort of, like... Because both of these have ridiculously specific fan bases who cannot articulate the entire storyline, but know every part of it individually. Yeah. Uh, and it has that same sort of, like, let me tell you about this, and then they ramble for 40 minutes, you know? Exactly. And then, and it also has, because of that, fan engagement is very deep, even if it's not very broad. If someone wanted to write a story that was aiming for a similar sort of engagement, they would do well to follow those three uh, templates. Write a story where every character can be three characters or something like that, you know, a multiplicity of character definition. And you have each of them having a mental space world or something, so lots of different worlds, and time travel. Not just time travel, like layers of different types of time travel on top of each other. Layers of different types of time travel, different types of realities, and multiplicity of character, I think are the three factors that lead to a disgustingly complex story that's hard to follow until you get into it page by just page. Just make a very compounded yes. onion. You know? Yes, exactly. A fractal onion. Yes. Mandelbrot's onion. So this is what, this is what the Shrek lore is like. Yes. <laughs> Shrek interactive media. Let's go. Certainly in the, I mean, certainly in the fourth movie, anyway, there's the whole time travel plot. Oh, wait, no, I, I well, I, I can't, it's on the tip of my tongue, but I'm just going to say it's um, Julienne Fry's Julia set, because I, I can't figure out how to combine that with Mandelbrot Onion. You want you some Julia Fry's? <laughs> Something like that? I don't know. Yeah. Definitely there's, oh, there is time travel in the fourth movie, is there? Yeah. yeah. Why? Um... Because like, reasons. Uh, f my hell life, and then he goes back to like before anything <laughs> happened. I think. Definitely, there's. Oh, there is time travel in the fourth movie, is there? Yeah. Why? I don't quite remember. Oh, it's one of those. It's oh, it's like an it's a wonderful life type plot. I huh? think so. Kind, kind of. of. Okay. Okay. I think there was yeah. also Rumpelstiltskin in that one, but I don't. That one was bad, though. Yeah. Well, yeah, I don't know. Well, oh, we gotta take Shrek back to his roots. The characters become too divorced from what fans fell in love with in the first place. Back to the core of the onion. <laughs> yeah, back to the core of the onion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We should do a Shrek episode. I think it'd be nice to watch all the movies again in, like, oh, yeah. tandem. Rapid succession. Yeah, yeah. yeah. On, st on video stream together. Oh, yeah, uh, we to could totally, totally do that. I think that'd be sick. I do think Shrek subverts traditional media tropes enough to warrant it being called alternative, yes. Even though it's a multi-million dollar production? Yes! A multi-dollar production? I never said alternative media couldn't be successful. Okay, okay. See, 
I wouldn't be inclined to call Shrek alternative media, but if it's alternative... I, I don't even know if it's alternative storytelling. I definitely think that Shrek was... Well, it was a children's book, you know, first, right? Yes. Yes. And by, what was his name? William Stagg? I think Shrek was a good movie, but it was bad for the industry. <laughs> Just going to say it right now. I think that the legions of imitators it spawned with regards to, say, like, oh, it's fairy tales, but they're crass and they sing 90s tunes. I think that was ultimately bad for animation. Yeah. No, I think it's true. That they... <laughs> People really ran with that for a while. Yeah. Pain. Yeah. And it just got old really fast. Pain and suffering. <laughs> Coming back to um, uh, the topic of interactive fiction, did you guys ever hear about the uh, the 4D Shrek film thing? 4D? Like, uh, oh, are you talking about like one of those ride coaster things where it's like uh, it's it's like a rocking ship with a screen at the front? What? Um, I don't I don't think it was a roller coaster. I think they actually shut it down like um But it it wasn't no, but it recently. was like an, it was like a mo- it was like a short film, but it had like the theater. Is it the one at Universal Studios where you sit yes. in s- seats that spray water at you and stuff? Yes, that it's, one. Yeah, okay. The polysensory experience. I went on the Minions one. Or the, uh, the uh, Despicable Me. Why would you do that to yourself, man? What was the Minions ones like? Because my friends were doing it to... We went to Universal Studios, um, and we went to the Despicable Me one. Yeah. <laughs> the line was short. Of course the line was short. It's Despicable Me. But we only had so much time in the night. Ugh. It was not bad for what it's worth, but I'm certain there were okay. better ones. I recall, sure. I, was, I was talking about this with my dad a while ago. I don't remember where in my life or when in my life it occurred, but there was, to my recollection, a 40 movie experience like that I went on when I was very young, which was, uh, I think it might have been at one of the Smithsonian museums. So the basic premise of this, as far as I recollect, and it's buried deep in my memory, was it was like a surgery or like there was a woman pregnant with a child that was possibly an alien, like an extraterrestrial. And the audience got to vote with like big American Idol style (laughs) smackable buttons on whether to make certain choices in the story. And the majority vote would determine the course of the story. And ultimately it had a happy ending, of course. But it was just like, this is something that's buried very deep in my memory. And I barely recall anything about it. And I haven't been able to find any information about it. But there I know some what you kind mean, of, though. Are, do you know the specific story I'm talking about, or just no, the no? I, idea? I just I get what you mean with like those weird like MK Ultra level like nostalgia moments. Well, yeah, no. <laughs> okay, that's yeah, what M- I would call it. MK Infra, Jesus. <laughs> it had like the same sort of like CGI for the medical shots that you would have in like Doctor House, right? Uh, so it was actually pretty technically competent for the era, considering this took place in the very early 2000s, probably. I mean, it's such a weird thing to recall. But I've definitely been on... You were bringing up the 4D experience with regards to interaction with the story, right? Because How it's, like, immersive, yes. I always find it really fascinating how there are these, like, interactive 4D experiences or even roller coasters sometimes that can be considered canon. Like, as far as I've read, the Back to the Future 4D experience is considered canon. Oh, that's amazing. I know. Like, I love how is that. A- well, but like, how is anyone going to experience it unless they go all the way to the theme park? It's kind of like um, uh, Half-Life Alex is basically restricted to people who have a VR headset or who are willing to watch poorly motion-tracked uh, live stream footage. And really, I think that's going to be one of the big barriers to VR is the tracking is never correct. It's never going to take off until the tracking is smooth. Yeah. Agree. But uh, it, it is really interesting to me that like even something as ancillary and 
removed from the main story as you know like kind of like a boat but all enclosed like a van or something and you've got a big movie screen at the front and you strap down into your roller coaster type chairs and then you know Christopher Lloyd walks into the screen and he says oh it's you <laughs> talking to you like Steve from Blue's Clues does and uh just says, oh, okay, good, we're going to be testing out multiple time travel or something, and then the whole thing is like the DeLorean going through time or something. And somehow that's canon. They did, um, I, you guys know the movie Good Burger? Yes. Yes. There was a limited edition, like, serial thing released for Good Burger, and on, on the back of it was, like, like some kind of, you know, like, typical, like, cereal box, like, maze, and I read in, like, some weird, like, uh, I don't know, like, listicle-type article, like, you know, 10 things you might not know about weird, like, Nickelodeon shit, that that was, like, considered canon, actually. <laughs> the maze is considered I'm, canon? I, also, I, I made all of that up. None of that is true. I would believe it, though. I <laughs> doesn't, believe- yeah, doesn't it sound like it's true? <laughs> Well, well, you're just a very convincing storyteller. Yeah, it sounds real. I like it, though. I was thinking, like, hamburger cereal? What? What, what, what are the, are the, is it just like a regular cereal with hamburger-shaped marshmallows, or is it actually hamburger-flavored? It's like flavored? dog food. Yeah, it's, it's, it's food ground beef. Cereal. It's ground beef. Beef and go. Have you seen beef and go? What is beef and go? I forget. I, it was one, by one of those early big YouTubers. It was a comedy skit where it was like gogurt but ground beef, so you oh, could God. eat ground beef on the go. Ugh. <laughs> I think about that way too much. This reminds me of I once saw a um, a Facebook Marketplace post for the Good Burger Burger Car. <laughs> Someone apparently came to own it, and it was all rotted out and like badly uh. damaged by time. Uh, but. They were selling it. You could have potentially bought the Good Burger Burger car. It's a good fixer-upper. Oh, yeah, absolutely. For a while, Cartoon Network on their shop had, like, for a million dollars, you could pay to have, like, an actual replica codename Kids Next Door treehouse built in your backyard. (laughs) I don't think anyone bought it, though. That would be amazing. They had that. Yes, I wish someone <laughs> bought it. God, that sounds like the, something like, if it were still online, I'd love to see a video, like, investigating it. Could you actually do this? Yes. <laughs> That's really good. <laughs> as far as, um, were we talking about Trick or Treat Beat before or after this stream started? Oh, before. Because <laughs> I wanted to bring that up again. It is really a good game. Do you want to introduce it again, Bela? Sure. So Trick or Treat Beat is, um, I would argue, the best game Cartoon Network has ever created. It is a, uh, it's a shockwave game, uh, very small resolution, unfortunately. But if you have like an uh, integer upscaling software, you can like make it sort of full screen-ish. But so in the game, uh, you're trick-or-treating from door to door, collecting candy and coins. Um, and you have these uh, costume tokens that you can walk on to change your costume. And each costume has a different power that allows you to bypass specific obstacles so it's like an overhead like puzzle game like so the skeleton is able to unlock gates because it's like skeleton the frankenstein can crush rocks boulders the sea monster can cross through water and the vampire can turn into a bat and fly the witch can turn um uh, ghosts into frogs which i was talking about this with well, my friend. Uh, it's just that all the other trick-or-treaters are dressed as ghosts yes they're probably other trick-or-treaters yes, i are. never thought of that when i was a kid <laughs> When I was a kid, I thought they were actual ghosts. It seemed obvious to me that they were other trick-or-treaters. Yeah, I mean, it seems obvious in retrospect. Maybe they're just using the ghost power-up. <laughs> yeah. The ghost power-up is just to be in your way and be annoying. <laughs> yeah. 
But yeah, so it's a really good game. Yeah, it's remarkably good. And like you were saying, it is unfortunate that it doesn't have save states because it does take a while to play. But it is a pretty damn good game. And it's, I think, like if you want to like rattle through a ton of ancient games and you want to make your own like little inventory of games, like I was saying, Itch.io developers, sometimes they are anonymous, but they have 200 entries in their page. These old Cartoon Network games that you need Flashpoint for, and you should get Flashpoint, you, these ones that you need Flashpoint for are great examples of basically lost media, if not for Flashpoint. Relatively few people remember them, but I feel like so many of them could be very easily adapted, mechanics alone, to the modern era. Yes. I was, I was pleased to find out, I saw a meme recently that was like a compilation of just a bunch of screenshots from like old properly licensed Flash games from like Disney, Cartoon Network, oh, yeah. etc. It was a collage of all these screenshots and it just said you had to be there. So I'm pleasantly surprised to learn that like more people remember these games and played them than I originally thought. But I think you're right though that like relative to how many people play and remember like big like, like Pokemon or... Kingdom Hearts, and so on. Like, I think it's not as much. It's more still than people who remember, say, like, Flash banner ads. So, okay, this is a um, bit of a weird segue, but I actually am going to have to, like, hop off pretty soon. Oh, yeah, no worries. <laughs> That's I totally work fine. But I also want to say, like, if you guys have more to say, like, keep recording. Like, don't let my leaving, like, stop you from recording. Like, if you got more to say, that would be awesome. But yeah, um, so I have to go to work now. I had uh, fun talking with you guys about right. this. And um, yeah, feel free to continue on the conversation. And I look forward to hearing what you say when Thanks. I get back. Yeah, thank you, Bela. Bye. Izzy, what is your favorite video game? I, oh God. Um, I've forgotten every single video <laughs> game I've ever played in my life. Hold on. Oh, no. When I was, okay, so funny story. When I was a kid, I like had a Mac and I didn't really like have access to a lot of games. So... I downloaded, like, this uh, Linux Super Mario remake, like, knockoff, and I would play it, like, on repeat until I had, like, millions of points. Nice. But honestly, I at the moment, I really like it. Deltarune? Nice. Yeah, I've been yes. trying to stay spoiler-free on that, because I haven't had the time to play it yet, which is to say that I haven't opened the executable yet. But for the little that I have seen of it, I'm I'm really eager for Yes, I think... I mean, how else like, are you supposed to sell it, but it, it's a Toby Fox game, you know? Exactly. Like, if you enjoyed Undertale and talked about it, like, we talked about it so much at length, then I'm sure you're gonna love this. Yeah, absolutely. It's fantastic. Especially since it's been... It was, like, the first game Toby started working on, actually. And then Undertale Yeah, I, I remember seeing something about that, that it was, um, essentially, Undertale was something to fill the time while he figured out Deltarune or something, or he had the characters yes, filled exactly. in and drafted first. Yes. It's interesting. Although, I, I don't know if anyone much has noticed this, but I always thought it was kind of funny how you have... So, Homestuck and Earthbound are semantically similar names, and uh, yeah. Undertale and Cave Story are semantically similar names. Oh, you're right. Oh. Yeah, and Cave Story is another famous, probably the famous example of a uh, game made by a solo developer that gained huge traction. Oh, wow. I actually... I don't know too much about Cave Story. Uh, it's, the premise is a little bit similar. Uh, you are a robot, a fighting robot with guns, and you are uh, traveling through an underground area, although I think it's actually in a floating island, like inside a floating island, and you're trying to free these weird dumb animal creatures from uh, a tyrannical oppressor, and a bunch of really heartbreaking stuff happens. 
So basically, and it's game. it's fun and difficult. Yeah, it's pretty fun. Yeah, yeah. and it was coded entirely by one guy. Oh wow! That's in like two thousand four. Oh shit! Yeah, nice. It's a pretty old game, and Cave Story Plus on Steam is the one I have. Uh, it's pretty damn good. Like it's the remastered version. Oh, I mean that's probably why I didn't play it in the first place because I just didn't have consoles. <laughs> well, no, the original version was free and it was for PC. I didn't have like a working computer that would run. Damn. <laughs> I know. So I missed out on like Damn. a ton. Oh well. <laughs> I have my knockoff Super Mario. <laughs> it's fine. Yeah, no, I had I had tons of um like really weird games that basically only snippets of them float through my brain at time to time. Besides all the humongous entertainment ones, of course, there was Roller Coaster Tycoon was made by one guy. Do you know about you you've played Roller Coaster Tycoon, I do. right? Yeah, no. I, I think it's one of the most amazing it, but... things that it was made by one guy. That, I didn't even know that. That's insane. Yeah. And that's like such like a household Well, especially thing. because that was in the era when it had to get into CDs on shelves. How do you do yeah, that with exactly. one guy? That blows my mind. Where is he now? I What's don't know. I, don't, I imagine he's probably working on other games. He we probably can, had... We can, we can let me look it up. Died in a horrific roller coaster. And the developer is Chris Sawyer. Okay, let me see. So he is known for Transport Tycoon and Roller Coaster Tycoon. What else has Transport he worked on tycoon. since then? Departure from industry. He sued Atari. And then he has a company now. So, no, he's still doing what he loves, which is tycoon-type games. All proud of him. And, he, Good and for he's him. also ridden 657 roller coasters in his life. <laughs> That's so yeah, cool. Yeah, that is pretty cool. In what sense is that interactive fiction also? What, riding a roller coaster? Well, if, if it's canon. The... <laughs> if the roller coaster is canon, I don't know. <laughs> he has lots of experience riding roller coasters to make a realistic roller coaster. Oh, obviously. I, I would imagine that's a large part of it. Especially yeah. when the roller coasters run at like one mile per hour for 10,000 <laughs> centuries. <laughs> I want to get off Mr. Bone's wild ride. No. Never. <laughs> the ride never ends. <laughs> <laughs> there was another thing I wanted to ask. The conversation about, like, 4D yeah. entertainment and just all these, like, different sensory experiences, would that not also tie into the scratch and sniff <laughs> idea we had at the beginning? I, well, yeah. I mean, I guess the Rugrats movie with the scratch and sniff tickets would oh, be... God. 4D. That's polysensory, sure. Again, I don't know if I consider those interaction. I just consider those uh, additional media. Yeah, you're probably right. I was just, like, curious. <laughs> curious. <laughs> to the point, like, at which those types of things become interactive. It's amazing to me how many times people have tried to invent smell-o-vision. Yeah! And, like, you think something would have worked by now, but Yeah, exactly. Really. Yeah. And probably for the best. <laughs> well, it's an easy pun to make, and people think if they start with the name, then the concept will work. It's like when you come up with a mashup by coming up with the name first, and rarely that works. Like, exactly. there was one mashup I love, which is Beastie Birds, so it's Intergalactic <laughs> by Beastie Boys and the Angry Birds theme song. Christ. I know, I know. <laughs> well, don't you tell me to... T oh my god. I know, I know. <laughs> That's beautiful. It's, it, it's one of the few that works, and you can very clearly tell the person came up with the name first. It's always <laughs> obvious when they have. 
Yeah, it all starts from, like, a good pun. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so smell-o-vision is the same way. People start with the name and think they can market it on the name alone. But the concept itself doesn't work, in part because humans aren't smell-based animals, and in part because a smell tends to stay around after it's emitted. Because it's exactly. a physical molecule. I've seen this so many times, even in, like, parody ads in Nick Magazine. Like, earbuds, but they go into your nostrils. Yeah, uh, like, what are you gonna uh, do? And also, like, how would it even, like, begin to emit these things? I guess it would have, like... like thinking, I'm thinking of, like, AirPod-type devices. Well, uh, if it's wireless, you're gonna have a difficult time. What is it doing? Yeah. Like, you might as well just have a system that electrically stimulates the olfactory nerves. That actually might well, work. Well, I've often thought that the next step for VR would be just straight-up direct stimulation of the brain. Like, right. brain-computer interface. As dehumanizing as certain aspects of it could be, at least with regards to if the game can send information to the brain, then it can control the brain, potentially. I think there's right. a great potential for polysensory gaming where you have, say, enhanced electrical stimulation of certain aspects of the brain, the proprioception and vestibulation. So basically, yeah, like, your, your senses of your surroundings and your balance... There was this brilliant game that was ahead of its time and uh, was gone too soon called Shattered Horizon. Have you heard of it? It sounds very familiar, but I don't think I know enough about it. This was an FPS uh, taking place in low Earth orbit, and it was in true zero gravity. So you were like an astronaut contractor using guns in space to fight other astronaut contractors over the ruins of a shattered space station. Wait, that's sick. Why did it not go anywhere? It was ahead of its time, and people couldn't get used to the zero gravity, I guess. I don't know. I don't know why it didn't oh, go man. anywhere. It just didn't get enough traction. It's a really interesting concept, and it's true zero gravity. There's, it's no, there's no fakiness to it. If you turn off your suit's engines and go into silent running, then you, like, disappear from other people's radar screens, but the only thing that can propel you, then, is the motion you already have and the recoil from your gun. So, in theory, if you aren't careful, you can shoot at someone and win the round, but you'll also eject yourself from the bound of play by flying backwards in the same other direction. I think that's fantastic. I like that better than just like regular VR games where everything is sort of like... Normal. Oh yeah, absolutely. It would be so... It wasn't in VR at the time. It was just on PC. Oh no. No, it was just on PC. Oh. My argument is that it should be in VR. I think more games like that should be in VR. I totally agree. I hate, like, just VR that's supposed to be, like, sort of, like, regular, because it always feels, like, really, like, trippy and weird. What I want is more VR games that deliberately mess with the viewer. I think that the future of VR exactly. games is in nausea, vomit-inducing games. Absolutely. I want games for like VR horror. that actually mess with the senses, that form an assault on the human brain. Exactly, and that's what it should be, shouldn't it? What's the point of, like, creating this machine that does something like that and then not yeah. utilizing it to the full extent that it's if able If you're just going to treat it as a screen with a weird control interface, then you might as well just use a PC. Exactly. It's like a PC just standing yeah. out. It's like, <laughs> like a PC five inches from your face. Yeah, which is also super bad for you. Yeah, Facebook Meta, for instance. They're marketing it as, like, a parallel internet when it's really just an MMO with a crappy interface. And it's not even exactly. like a genre fiction MMO, it's a literary fiction MMO, because it corresponds to real life. You can do anything, you can go anywhere, but it's just going to turn out like Second Life and, um, um, uh, <laughs> what was the other one? <sighs> Me's, uh, I am The point you. being that it's all been done before. It's all yeah. been done before, and it never really goes anywhere fast. Like, it's all sort of, like, arbitrary, and, like, it's, like, it always just succumbs to, like, furry in-game meetups like that and <laughs> that's like great 
I love that, but, like, that's all they pretty much turn into. Yeah. Like, it will not be what they're intending it to be at all. I don't think. Yeah. Oh, Decentraland. That's it. Decentraland was a Second Life-style MMO where people essentially owned the parcels of land that they had in the game. Kind of like today's NFTs. But it didn't go anywhere, and it had this same sort of dumb, cartoony, corporate art style. Yeah, exactly. And I think a large part of the problem with these is that they're marketing it as, yeah, as you were saying, and as I was saying, it's like a parallel internet, but it's really just an MMO with a bad control interface. And if it were really a viable business solution to hold teleconferences in an MMO with a crappy control interface, people would already be holding business meetings in MMOs that have good control interfaces like keyboard and mouse. It doesn't actually solve anyone's problem. And so what I think instead is that VR should embrace the strengths of its medium, and it should deliberately screw with the human brain to the fullest extent possible. Agree. I want to traumatize people. Exactly. If you have a game like Shattered Horizon for VR, it should actually electrically stimulate the vestibulatory senses of the brain so that you feel like you're in zero-g. So that your orientation of zero-g in the game doesn't have to be tied to your correspondence to gravity in the real world. Wouldn't that be interesting? That would be the best, honestly. I think that would be game changing. Absolutely. Even just that one thing. If they could figure out how to wiretap the um, inner ear, I think that would be game changing. There's another concept called impossible colors, where it's like colors that the human brain can process, but the eye cannot see. So you can experience this roughly if you have, for example, your entire left field of vision is covered with the color red, and your entire right field of vision is covered with the color green. Your stereoscopic vision will combine them into a reddish-green that can't exist in real life. Your brain can process it, but your eyes can't see it separately. So why don't VR games do more stuff like that? Why does it always have to be pure stereo, like you would correspond to real vision? Why can't we have VR games that work like Magic Eye? That's a fantastic idea, Where the two different visual fields of the brain do completely different sensory information. Maybe it's, like, the companies are concerned of it being a little, like, too vomit-inducing. But even then, I'm sure there are ways that one could produce You don't need that. to be a company to do this. Yeah. Well, true, you don't need to be a company. But I'm sure there are ways to, like, do this and create one of these things that, like, is done really well. Yes. And not, like, completely nauseating. Well, if a rock show can be nauseating, I think that uh, alternative media like this should be allowed to. Well, of course. <laughs> There's, like, a difference between, like, extreme, extreme strobing lights and, like, what this well, is. Well, yeah, if, if games are going to have warnings about, uh, uh, this game may contain flashing lights, viewers with epilepsy be advised, wha- just yeah. lean into it. Like I was saying about Slave exactly of God, true. you know? Plus, it's, like, supposed to be, like, a full sensory experience exactly. anyways, so why not just continue? Yeah, I don't think that anyone's going to think they're floating through the metaverse if they still feel like they're sitting in a chair. <laughs> Right. It's like Sonic Unleashed for Xbox 360, the day stages, is the fastest Sonic has ever been. Genuinely nauseatingly fast. Like, that's the closest it ever feels to feeling like he's actually (laughs) traveling at the speed of sound. It's really difficult to look at because he's just going so fast. But I think that's how Sonic should be. And it's the same it is with VR. I think that no one's pushing the technology to its limits. And if they are, they're not getting recognition for it. Now, to turn this a bit around, how would you use this, do you think, for, um, because I don't have an answer for this. How do you use this for storytelling? If you're going to push VR to its limits, how do you use that to tell a good story? That's a good question. Are you thinking, like, plot-wise, or, like, what would be a good plot that would utilize this, or... Well, if Scratch and Sniff is a medium for telling a story, then surely you can tell a unique kind of story with VR as a medium that you can't tell in any other medium. 
I've gone back and forth on whether Amazing World of Gumball is a good story. I think it's well written, but something I think about is whether it could be translated to any other medium. And the sheer mixture of art styles they use, I think, would preclude that. You would always lose something in translating Gumball to another medium. So Absolutely. what kind of game, or what kind of story could you tell through VR that could not be told through any other medium? Even like when Hollywood movies try to do like the rare first-person movie, it doesn't really work. <laughs> Well, I think, like, one of those sort of games where you have to, like, look around. I guess the only thing I could, like, compare it to really is... Well, I mean, you have to look around in, like, every game. But um, there's, like, this music video by Gorillaz. I think it's Saturn's Bar's music okay. video. Where, like, the entire thing is just, like, in... You can rotate it no matter what, and there's always something Oh, it's one of those, on. like, fa uh, YouTube panorama things? Yeah. And I haven't used seen that like utilized at all, but I think that might be a really hmm. neat concept to have, or like neat inspiration to have for a VR game, or at least like one that couldn't be exactly translated to a thing like YouTube because it's not like completely good. Well, yeah, <laughs> taking the limiters off is an interesting idea, in the sense that like normally when you have a video, it's it has to be within the frame, or the viewer just can't see it. But if you can turn your head around, you can actually see stuff that would otherwise be out of the frame. Exactly. But I'm kind of struggling to, like, figure out, like, anything to do with that that wouldn't just be either just, like, a normal video game that you could play anyways, or, like, a glorified YouTube movie watch device. Yeah, because, like, one of my favorite dumb uses of the YouTube panorama system was for copyright infringement, <laughs> where someone would have, like, it would be a panoramic photo of a house and you'd turn the view around 180 degrees, and there would be, like, Die Hard playing on a TV in the scene. <laughs> Perfect. Good. Exactly. That's yes. brilliant. Apparently makes it much harder to detect the copyright. Who would have guessed? <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess pro tip. Pretty clever. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's pretty clever. <laughs> I like stuff like that. So yeah. th there was there were a few episodes of Homestar where they would you know they have this black matte border around the frame of the video of the episode, but in some episodes it would expand outwards and the characters would mess with the frame itself, yeah, and, like, move it apart as if it were just set dressing, like that one. And so like it's that sort of thing you get to see more. Yeah, but exactly. I don't think that's the only thing to it because VR is from a first person perspective. I don't know. Right. I, I don't think even Half-Life Alex necessarily takes advantage of the strengths of VR as a medium. And I don't know if anyone's really figured out what those strengths are to their fullest extent yet. Yeah, that's why I'm having such a hard time having any suggestions. Just because, well, for one, I'm not that creative when it comes to, like, VR and, like, designing sort of, like, 3D spaces. But, like, I haven't really seen anybody do anything that grips me enough to, like, really truly hmm. be interested in vr gaming beyond just like hmm. trying it and like maybe playing phasmophobia which is still like super glitchy and weird. yeah there's certainly a lot of problems it has to overcome i think one of those problems uh, besides the medium itself is that the hardware is still often proprietary like you could have vr headsets that work with other vr games but it seems like there's a certain problem it has where the controller is proprietary you know what i'm talking about there yes. needs to be a disconnect between the manufacturer and the medium. Right now, it's like if you were to buy your keyboard from your ISP. Yeah, exactly. And that's just, like, frustrating. Yeah. You should be, they should all be able to be interchanged. It's just another piece of hardware. It's a screen in front of your eyes. 
Yeah, and it, like, blocks so much innovation, too. Like, that is so inaccessible. That I way. should be able to use one HTC Vive controller and one Steam VR controller. Exactly. I should be able to use a Wii nunchuck. <laughs> I think we should bring Wii back. I miss the Wii. Oh, absolutely. No, a Wii bowling parties, third grade, hell yeah. We, wait, VR, that's just, like, entirely weeble. <laughs> no, no, well, yes, but I was just reminiscing about, like, third grade, you'd have your, you'd bring in oh, Wii Sports and play bowling, or you'd play WarioWare Smooth Moves. Those Absolutely. were the days. <laughs> I, um, there was, like, a fishing game on, like, Wii that I don't quite remember. It was, I think it was, like, a mini game, and I don't recall what the full game was but i remember was this the same that. one that had like the tank battle where all the tanks were made of wood maybe mm, i don't know i don't quite remember i think it was like a me centric thing mm. but i can't be sure probably yeah <laughs> nintendo me's th th those have stuck around for a surprisingly long time i guess we're not gonna do swiss cheese this episode I guess not, because there's no, like, real notes that I have. Yeah. Or, like, any source material that I can, like, slap cheese onto right now. No worries. But we'll do, like, maybe an extra one next week. All right. We'll see. All right. We'll, I'll t to figure out uh, <laughs> penance, I guess, for mm. that. Um, but this is wonderful. Thank Absolutely. you for the conversation. Definitely. And I hope your video file is uploadable, or uh, your audio file, anyway. Uh, Me too. I hope it's not I hope so yours large. Too. Yeah. It'll it'll be fine. All right. It'll be fine. Well, see you later. All right. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Ficktron. Be sure to leave a like and subscribe to the Ficktron YouTube channel. Also, check out the official Ficktron website at altficportal.wixsite.com slash Ficktron. That's altficportal.wixsite.com slash Ficktron. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at altficportal. You can reach me on Twitter at serrated underscore M, Izzy at tombscone, and PDB at peterdanielberg.com. Links and relevant media will be in the description. And lastly, look out for an upcoming after show segment where Izzy and Peter talk Western and Animation. Thanks again.